0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Towards Data Science podcast. Now, until recently, very few people were actually paying attention to the potential malicious uses of AI. And that made some sense. In an era where AIs were narrow and had to be purpose-built for every application, you'd need an entire research team to develop AI tools for malicious applications. And since it's more profitable and safer for that kind of talent to work in the legal economy, AI didn't offer that much low-hanging fruit for malicious actors. But today, that's all changing. As AI becomes more flexible and general, the link between the purpose that an AI system was originally built for and its potential downstream applications has gotten a lot weaker. Language models can be trained for valuable tasks like supporting writing, translating between languages, or even writing better code. But a system that can write an essay can also write a fake news article or power an army of human-like text-generating bots. More than any other moment in the history of AI, the move to scaled, general-purpose foundation models has shown how AI can be a double-edged sword. And now that these models exist, we have to come to terms with them and figure out how to build societies that remain stable in the face of compelling AI-generated content and increasingly accessible AI-powered tools with malicious use potential. And that's why I wanted to speak to Katya Sadova, a former Congressional Fellow and Microsoft alumna who now works at Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology, where she recently co-authored some fascinating work exploring current and likely future malicious uses of AI. Now, if you like this conversation, I really recommend checking out her team's latest work. It's called AI and the Future of Disinformation Campaigns. Katja joined me to talk about malicious AI-powered chatbots, fake news generation, and the future of AI-augmented influence campaigns on this episode of the Towards Data Science podcast. following, well, your work in particular, and then CSET, where, where you work, the Center for Security and Emerging Technology, uh, more broadly for a long time now. We've had Helen Toner on the podcast before, a whole bunch of really interesting conversations with folks uh, in that ecosystem. And your work especially is really, really cool. It's focused on large language models sort of this this proliferation of very powerful language modeling techniques and then their malicious applications which is something that i love to see more kind of conversation about in the general general world sphere just because it's starting to become such a, a fascinating issue i'd love to get a sense from you though like what brought you to this area of focus and maybe to ai in, in general too if you want to talk about that as well
1: well my uh area of interest uh sort of lies in the gray zone of warfare um everything that is short of kinetic operations, um, you know, use of force operations. And so um, I got interested in disinformation and cyber operations in particular um, in 2014 when uh, Russia invaded uh, Ukrainian territory for the first time and looking at how those operations Uh, evolved, especially how they use cyber and uh, uh, information operations to accompany their uh, sort of special operations on the ground. I, I really um, got interested in that in that field then, and of course the AI aspect of it is that where are we going? Um, we've seen since 2014 a lot of these operations sort of become more present, uh, more present in the minds of Americans in particular because of the 2016 election. Um, but um, the next question is the, the obvious one: is where is it going to go and where is it going to evolve? So my my interest in AI is very much at that junction of how uh, cyber operations and influence operations may be impacted by our advances in AI.
0: It's a fascinating intersection and, I don't know, AI has a way of forcing us all to become, in a way, experts in so many different subfields, you know, because you can apply to so many different things, you start to wonder, well, okay, if it can be used for information operations, for example, like, what what is an information operation? Maybe that's a good place for us to start. Um, could you give a little bit of background for people like me who know less about, you know, influence operations, cyber attacks, that sort of ecosystem? What's sort of the one, the one hundred and one in terms of what things maybe looked like when you entered the field, like twenty fourteen? What were people doing, and what was possible?
1: Um, sure. Well, the, the the tricky part about the field, like um, influence operations or disinformation campaigns, is that there isn't an agreed upon definition, and in fact. Every once every couple months, there is a debate on Twitter among like, what do we mean by disinformation? What do we mean by misinformation? What do we mean by information warfare and influence operations? So, not to get into the definitional uh, tangent here, uh, I will say that it's the use of uh, cognitive space information, the use of information and misuse of information to influence decision making. Um, and that includes. Uh, disinformation includes false or misleading or deceptive uh, information or using using false uh, information in a uh, to mislead uh, the public to change a a decision making process to change public opinion Um, but I also include in that use of maybe partially truthful information in a misleading context Mm. uh, to shape The uh, how the public is perceiving that information. Um, So how, where did it start is difficult to say. Um, It started as long as people use lies to influence public opinion, and that is much, that predates um, a lot of our, uh, what we're talking about today. You know, in in our, in the series of reports that that we just published at CSET on the intersection of AI and disinformation campaigns, and how AI may empower disinformation campaigns, we actually quote, uh, we use a quote from 1703 uh, that that some of you may have heard that uh the paraphrase that is often paraphrased that um like lies lies fly and truth comes limping after it mm. uh, and uh now of course we are in a situation where the medium of uh the internet and then social media and whatever is coming next in, in, in this information revolution, the medium itself is um, is conducive to such an enormous volume of both information and disinformation um, that this is where this takes it to a, a whole other scale and level, which is why we're talking about it today.
0: Yeah, this really does seem like one of the fundamental aspects of all this that. The, that the medium that we use to communicate um, allows for the propagation, the virality of certain pieces of information, and that the virality is completely decoupled from the truthfulness of the content. So as long as you engineer your payload carefully enough, you can cram in a bunch of messages in there that, of course, are, are completely decoupled from reality. Um, AI seems to have a lot to do with this as well, with making payloads that are shareable, maybe with forcing things to be shared. There are all kinds of different ways that AI plays into this that you explore in the report. Uh, Can you touch on on some of these? Like what are some of the the lowest hanging fruit in terms of things that can be automated from the classical disinformation campaign uh, standpoint using AI systems today?
1: Sure. Um, Well, in our report, we actually zoom out a little bit. Um, So of course, uh, Deep fakes, synthetic media, videos, audio, images have generated a lot of angst and a lot of excitement and hype. And when people think about AI and disinformation, that's inevitably what they think about first. We zoomed out in our report and we wanted to ask from the threat actor perspective, if you are a disinformation operator wanting to build disinformation campaigns, how can you use AI to enhance your operations. And a lot of ways in which uh, machine learning can be used today, for example, um, happens before a user ever sees a message. Uh, so for example, we, we you know, for our purposes, we broke down operations into stages. And so we talk about a reconnaissance stage, a stage that basically allows threat actors understand what their target society is talking about, how they're talking about it, uh, how do they feel about certain issues and find those fissures that they can exploit. Um, And that of course doesn't just happen uh, online on social media, Uh, it happens in the broadcast media and what what is on television, a particular nation. Um, But we focus our understanding on social media. And this is where one aspect where it's not something that is visible necessarily, because we don't encounter that as human beings every day. And yet the amount of digital footprint that we leave online posting publicly is enormous. And it provides an enormous opportunity for uh, for bad actors to, to understand what we're concerned about, what's trending, how are people talking about in terms of emotional signature about particular things. So um, some of the machine learning technologies, um, well, natural language processing technologies that are now using machine learning, um, like sentiment analysis, like stance detection, allow threat actors to um, understand Uh, how the society talks online, understand the emotional signature, you know, is it a positive or a negative sentiment that someone talks about, Um, allows them to understand who is talking about similar issues. And so uh, um, some of the technologies like network analysis, for example, now enhanced with machine learning as well, can identify and target the audiences a lot more precisely. Um, so that's one aspect that people don't talk about nearly as much, because it is also a general purpose to yeah. use technology that digital marketers use to understand how someone talks about a particular product. And I apologize for the siren here. Um, digital marketers use these technologies as well. In fact, digital marketing has been on the forefront of, of some of its social listening techniques trying to understand how how people think about their products and brands um, so that's one aspect um,
0: it, it is also that particular aspect I find especially interesting because m- my first reaction when I, I you know started to encounter this era of large language models and it was all towards language generation, and I was focused on, oh, well, you know, we're looking at phishing attacks, we're looking at generation of fake news, we're looking at sharing of fake news on social media, all these things. But the, the classification aspect, the sort of sentiment analysis, the, the the discriminative, not the generative, is is just as important, it seems, to like design your campaign, to, to start thinking strategically about what buttons to push in a society. It, it's a fascinating uh, problem class.
1: And in fact, it's one of the aspects that is, I argue, is the most important, because from that aspect from surveilling your information environment comes the kind of messages you're going to generate the kind of narratives you're going to push and even though you know disinformation operators may come to that saying okay we want to make sure that there's a particular narrative that is starting to trend so we're going to push a particular narrative but how you craft a message to actually resonate with the audience it is completely dependent on the audience and understanding your audience and understanding of that audience comes from that building block of preparatory stages like reconnaissance um, to be able to, to then uh, sort of craft the messaging that will actually resonate.
0: Well, I imagine one challenge with this, too, because when you talk about generation, at least there are artifacts of generation that can theoretically be detected by defenders. So you could notice that, oh, there are a bunch of Twitter bots that are behaving in this way, again, in theory. Uh, But when it comes to this discriminative function, this analytics function, uh, that seems like it would be something that's a lot harder to even notice, to tell when your opponents are using it. Do you have any um, any sense of, like, who might be using it? Are you just assuming that basically everyone will at this point? That seems like a reasonable assumption.
1: You know how in cybersecurity there's this axiom of, like, it's not a matter of if you get hacked, it's a matter of when you get hacked. Right. Um, yeah, I, I am assuming at this point that um, any nation state that has access to um, a, more or less modern digital marketing tooling and social listening tooling, um, including in societies that actually use that a lot for their political campaigns, for example, that they will have access to that kind of tooling. The question is, what kind of data can they use? Uh, How easily can they scrape publicly posted information, say on Twitter, or on Facebook, and some, some social media platforms make it a lot harder than others, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the newer, smaller social media companies that are maybe, uh, you know, on the fringes of of our information environment, may not have the kinds of protections that the bigger ones do. So, Um, I would assume that the technologies are out there and the data that we put out there is effectively being scraped if someone really wants it well enough, whether it is for an intelligence operation, for cultivation, or for a mass influence operation campaign.
0: Yeah, and I'd imagine that's kind of the the challenge when you're talking to policymakers and, and getting people to take this seriously. Like, I may not have evidence, but like, they would be stupid not to do this, and let's not assume that they're stupid, that seems like a very a very rational position to take. Uh, now, I think I interrupted you because you, you listed that kind of analytics function first, and I know there are a number of others too. We tried to, to
1: break down the, the process of building a campaign. Now, there is a necessary degree of abstraction that has to happen here because Uh, no campaign is really alike. It's just that there's some of the more common techniques that we have seen over a decade of this now, this kind of exploitation of social media. Um, And a lot of it is obviously coming from the takedowns that social media platforms have done. A lot of our learning is informed by that, Mm. not by the campaigns that weren't discovered. So with that caveat in mind, we try to organize Uh, the kind of common techniques that that, uh, operators use into a set of stages that they go through. So I already mentioned reconnaissance, for example, where they might discover and discern uh, the sentiment of how a society talks particular issues, find the fissures that they can exploit and start targeting their audiences, for example. Um, Next, they would say, okay, so we understand what the fissures are. Now we need to build infrastructure. Uh, specific social media personas, for example, that will carry uh, those messages that would be credible and perceived as credible in a particular targeted community. Uh, Or we need to build websites that will host of a fake think tank that will host articles or a fake media site like that will host a particular type of content that, you know, we can say is it's an independent media site. Um, so that, that stage that we call, you know, infrastructure stage is also very important because you need credible messengers to carry the campaigns and sites that carry some degree of credibility. And you can either build those or you can acquire those and you can acquire those now from a growing coterie of what we call influence as a service firms. And we can touch on that later too. Yeah, that sounds like an interesting concept. Dive on that. Um, Or, you know, some threat actors have even um, acquired, tried to pay uh, social media influencers to push their messages. That has happened already. And those are not in authentic accounts. So they're very hard to detect as well. Um, Then um, after that comes the stage of actually building content that will carry the messages of the campaigns. And uh, that content may come in a variety of formats. You know, we know how viral memes can be. example right but there's also you need this this not and never ending uh sort of supply of uh short posts long posts depending on the social media platform where you're doing this campaign you know short videos yeah uh, you know a lot of it is informed by the medium by the battlefield so to speak um and once uh once you have all that as an operator you know you deploy the campaign um meaning either you launch the site or you launch the first tweet and then start linking to that particular site to that particular content. Um, and start getting amplification. So we talk um, a lot about the role of automated uh, systems bots, all the automated scripts uh, that are possible on some of the platforms, not possible on others. But we also talk about um, targeting social media influence or media influencers, started getting public figures and essentially social engineering them into uh, spreading that content to their followers. And we've seen all of these already in some of the campaigns that we've seen even in the United States in our information environment. And then, the next thing that may or may not happen is this deployment of trolls—actual humans, hands-on keyboard humans—that get on uh, the larger digital media sites and start trolling people in comment sections, or start trolling people in in the comments of the specific posts for a campaign, trying to create a sense of of consensus that there is a particular consensus on a particular issue, or really trying to aggravate the audience uh, as much as possible to get them to engage further, to get them to react emotionally, which gets us engaged further in that pulled into the debate, uh, which gets uh, on, on the social media platforms that have recommendation algorithms, gets more engagement and more eyes onto those posts that have a lot of conversation and then gets more people into the conversation, uh, inevitably either aggravating them or getting them to disconnect and remove themselves from the political debate entirely. The, fi- the ultimate stage that we call um, actualization is when the campaign actualizes is again, it's an abstraction of sorts, uh, because ultimately what, what we argue is that when people move from the digital space into physical space, when they start internalizing the messages of the campaign, they potentially get enrolled to become the operators themselves and create either create messaging for the for the original operation or start organizing events, uh, organizing rallies, uh, go protest um, in the physical realm. Um, and potentially take more violent actions, more extreme actions. This is what we call the actualization stage. And we we think of it as sort of the pinnacle of the pyramid um, of all of these operations. Not all of these have to occur, uh, because much like we we sort of thought of this as a cyber kill chain, and uh, not all of the steps in this operation, uh, in this uh, kill chain for disinformation, so to speak, Um, have to occur, but uh, a lot of them have to occur.
0: It's interesting to see all the the different opportunities that there would be to introduce AI augmentation into that process. Because off the top, I mean, I imagine to correct me if I'm wrong, but I see a couple of things around like infrastructure, for example. When you're setting up that new that fake think tank website, you be po- populated with all kinds of content, and maybe you're a Russian or a Chinese or you know some kind of foreign threat actor, and you you know English speaking talent is expensive, and using a system like a large language model to automatically generate first draft or to to help somebody edit or or write those posts might be helpful. Um, But then I also imagine there's there's the kind of the generation of shareable content on social media and then the propagation of that content. These all seem kind of like low hanging fruit. Is is that a fair assessment or are there? uh... Those
1: are those are the aspects that are already in a way automatable, Mm. Um, for example. know you mentioned the infrastructure stage so imagine that infrastructure stage as i mentioned requires credible personas to carry the message right Uh, we have already seen the kinds of very uh, lifelike human-like avatars that a demo site this person does not exist has produced and in fact That's a model that was out there. Someone got excited about this model, uh, Style Again 2, and wrapped it into a website. And when the website went live, literally the same month, we saw uh, fake avatars created from that website as part of a campaign. So um, we'll talk about the wisdom of how we publish AI, models? hopefully in a bit. But this is an example of where ever since then, ever since late 2019, um, avatars using photos from that site have been now part of just about every campaign through 2020 and in 2021. Um, So it's easier to say which campaigns didn't have those than those that did. Um, So it's become a staple. Um, this goes to perhaps the question that inevitably comes up is that, have the, has this media been used? Yes, it has in that particular, at least in that particular limited form. But to your point about fake think tanks, fake media sites, one of the campaigns in 2020, actually two campaigns in 2020 perpetrated by uh, Russian uh, actors, um, state connected actors, formerly from the the uh, infamous uh, Russian uh, internet research agency. Uh, Two of their campaigns uh, involved building a media site um, that one of them focused on uh, left leaning, political left in the United States and the UK. And one of them focused on politically uh, right leaning uh, um, audience in the United States. Both of them, uh, having learned from their experience in 2016 of maybe not having very good English capabilities being detected because of that, um, both of them hired freelance journalists to publish content. So they were essentially working as cultivating agents, hiring freelance journalists are English speaking to publish content. The operation was inevitably discovered in part because humans were hired to build content. And they were unwitting humans and they didn't want to be part of this as soon as they figured out something's up. You can imagine how a language model can automate the human out of that process substantially. And that creates less noise. It allows to accomplish more with fewer humans and um, potentially make the operation last much, much longer.
0: And I guess it also makes it easier to A-B test content, right? I mean, if a if, if human has to write a, a post and it's not terribly shareable, you kind of go, ah, well, on to the next thing. But if you can write 10 different blog posts with 10 different angles, send them out, and, and then have an army of, of bots. And I guess that's the other thing, too. The bots themselves, you know, you mentioned this person does not exist.com. Um I guess another aspect of that, too, is the potential of language models to allow these Twitter accounts or Facebook accounts to sort of generate off-target posts um, in the intervening period. So they have this kind of track record of credibility that they've accumulated over time. So then, you know, the bots of today, we see, you know, they're shilling Bitcoin and it's super obvious, you go to the profile, it's all these posts about Bitcoin. There's nothing about elections. There's nothing about usual kind of Twitter nonsense but um, but i imagine you could get to the point where you have bots that have a seemingly authentic track record because generation of text has now become so cheap thanks to these language models is that is that something that i guess maybe isn't detectable yet or something that hasn't occurred quite yet or or is that something you've seen already
1: well you touched on a lot of really interesting things that i would i would love to unpack in there um so like one thing i will note that this person does not exist is just one part of an experiment that, you know, you can go to this X does not exist and see other experiments, like literally, uh, uh, in terms of building infrastructure, um, an operator can go to just that, that, family of sites and generate a human that do, a profile for a human that doesn't exist, that has cats that don't exist, that consume food that doesn't exist, that live in mm. apartments that don't exist, or travel to Airbnbs that don't exist, and, and travel on beaches that also don't exist. I mean, it is, it is uh, the, the, just the, the plethora of content that's just possible from that site is quite interesting, um, and that gives you a breadth um, of what's possible. Um, Another point on A-B testing and how easy, uh, how much uh, this kind of capability is helpful. Um, We, uh, My colleagues, uh, Drew Lone and Micah Musser and Ben Buchanan and I wrote in a paper on GPT-3, when we tested GPT-3 for capability to write disinformation content. Um, We we pointed out that if nothing else, this, concept of human machine team will allow the humans that are involved with the process to generate many more messages much faster and just throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. So um, that is also uh, creating an environment where there's a potential for enormous uptick in volume of, of these campaigns. Um, To your point on the bot, absolutely. We have seen techniques already where a group on Facebook back in the day when, you know, there wasn't as much policing, for example, as it is today. Um, a group on Facebook that starts building up, um, a, you know, tourism pictures of beautiful Riga or beautiful Vilnius, and in the, that, that particular group was focused on travel in the Baltics, um, starts building up a lot of content about travel in the Baltics and, uh, you know, promoting tourism in the Baltics, and then all of a sudden it switches into mm-hmm. an influence campaign content. And it's already built up credibility and a lot of audience with innocuous content. And we have seen that happen already as a technique to generalize. It's a technique that essentially has threat actor build audience with innocuous concept uh, content or interest-based content like tourism, like food, like Bitcoin, um, and then switch when the time comes to switch. Um, And there's absolutely uh, the opportunity for that to happen. And the challenge with that is that bots are dual use too. How Twitter, for example, as a platform um, allows good bots to to exist so that we can get an uptick of New York Times breaking news, for example. The same technology underlies bad bots. So it is... An enormous uh, task for the platform to figure out who's the good bot and who's the bad bot, which is why they 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 vet a lot more than we all know, and they have to vet a lot more because. But it's not just vetting of of what application it has access to their platform and and has access to their uh, APIs. It's also monitoring the behavior and what kind of um how the behavior switches from acceptable to that that starts violating terms of service
0: i absolutely do want to get your take specifically on that on on what Social media companies are doing and the extent to which it's working. You know what you think they, they should be doing instead. But I do wanna I do wanna double click on a concept that you raised earlier because it seems like it's it's close to coming up again. This idea of influences as a service businesses because what you've now described is like this massive ecosystem with a whole bunch of moving parts. You know there there are Twitter bots and APIs. You need to be able to wrangle. You need to do a level of kind of intelligence gathering and analytics to understand what your target population is and what its weak spots are. You've got to get into content infrastructure all this stuff I would imagine is like best done or done most efficiently under one roof with a a dedicated company or a dedicated team Um, I'd love to to get your thoughts on influence as as a service as a general concept and where you see that going in the next few years what kind of integration you imagine happening with these different tools and strategies yeah, it's,
1: it's becoming quite a market and you can tell because um, just about every takedown report that Facebook publishes has some uh, notion of a PR firm or a marketing firm somewhere mostly overseas that is working outside of their normal market and is working on behalf of a domestic political actor that is part of the domestic election ecosystem for example or on behalf of a nation state actor trying to influence target audience in yet another state so that that phenomenon is growing where you have seemingly legitimate marketing firms going into this kind of illegitimate activity. Um, I think what's so far, a lot of this activity has evolved either on building up uh, accounts that then can get activated to like a particular brand or post about a particular brand, et cetera, et cetera, um, or Uh, cultivating bots that could do the same to promote content, for example, or to get a lot of followers for someone who wants to game the um, algorithms um, on social media platforms and get a lot of um, sort of play for their messages. The more obviously the more accounts you have, the more influential you seem or sorry, the more followers you have, the more influential you seem. and the same with likes, you know, the more likes a particular message has, the more it's gonna get pushed up in the feed of, of, of those who follow you or those who follow a particular topic. Uh, but where I see this going, unfortunately is uh, is bleak because um, it is not difficult for these firms it, or it won't be difficult for these firms to start either using AI as a service firms, such as the service that OpenAI, for example, um, offers, right? Using AI for legitimate purposes to generate legitimate things, legitimate messages um, and going and either starting to try and plug into that ecosystem where they can use um, AI as a service or um, essentially taking the open source AI systems that are out there, hiring a bunch of technical talent, uh, which isn't actually that difficult, and starting to fine tune the models that are out there already. Some of the well, well, well funded ones may even start investing in building these novels uh, themselves, but it is very expensive as we, as we know, these are the the novel uh, models are sort of still exquisite and are um, sort of the domain of very specific private sector companies or nation states. Um, But I think the lower hanging fruit there is essentially taking open sourced or openly available systems and fine tuning them for specific campaigns. For example, building out avatars, say fine tuning style 2 too, because you want to target you know, veterans and fine tuning them on photos of veterans. And now all of a sudden you have a campaign of credible accounts that look credible to a, a former veteran um, and uh, using that for a particular campaign, for example. Or, um, really trying to game their way into the AI as a service uh, companies, which is why it's really, really important that anyone who's building models to provide it as a service um, have to, they have to step up their mitigation techniques and vetting techniques and become essentially some of the more leading mainstream social media companies in a way.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating problem class too. You mentioned some of the open source stuff. I know uh, Aloyther AI just came out with a a twenty a 20 billion parameter version of basically GPT-3. So, you know, we've just gone in their case, I think from like 3 billion to 6 billion with GPT-J to now, you know, 20 billion. So we're getting up there and the system can generate some really plausible looking text. It seems like just a matter of time to see these things proliferate. Uh, Interesting that you're mentioning too, like these de facto start to carry the burden of social publishers, of social media companies doing that screening. Um, Do you see a risk there of a kind of race to the bottom? Because I know when when um, GPT-3 first came out, or, or when the uh, the beta was first released, OpenAI had this strong line where they said, "Look, we will we will screen every single person who got you know who goes through our application process to make sure that they're using GPT-3 the right way. We'll monitor usage of GPT-3 and so on." Then you had over in Israel, AI21 Labs. They came out with the GPT-3 competitor. All the, but they weren't screening, as as far as I know, in the same way. So now all of a sudden, OpenAI goes, "Well, I'm, like what like what's the point here of, of doing that screening? Let's try to." find an automated way to kind of do our best here. Uh, But now it's effectively, I mean, you can even go to GPT-3 Playground and start messing around with it. You'll get a little warning if your content is considered a little risky, but you'll still get the content. Um, Do you see a risk of that sort of race to the bottom? And is regulation the answer? Is there some other strategy that can be used to mitigate that?
1: This is a really interesting question, and it is evolving probably even as we speak. Uh, because you're right, OpenAI was on the forefront and still is on the forefront of using these systems responsibly. Um, and looking at the competition, it's starting to look a little bit more difficult, especially as people um, start developing these systems. Understand that, you know, once you understand the transformer architecture, maybe it's not as difficult to actually go and scale it up and not be the first to the punch, but be the third or 10th to the punch. But um, the challenge there, too, is that the actors that are out there today, the private sector companies that are out there today are still somewhat responsible. But what what happens to the ecosystem when more irresponsible actors start getting involved? And basically, everyone is uh, self-regulating themselves. I will say, though, that Oh, oh, there's another debate that you brought up, Eleuther AI. There's also another debate that comes in. It's like, these systems have to be open so that we could right. find solutions. And this is how Eleuther AI is justifying their publication, for example, their open publication. Uh, I, I still think that Um, OpenAI is still on the forefront of uh, leading the the conversation about responsible use um, of AI. It's just that we're not seeing potentially a lot of it publicly. I think there's a lot of conversation going on in this ecosystem about how to track Bad behavior on the back end. How these companies can actually see uh, automated yeah. generation. Um, what systems they can build in um, on the back end on their service to monitor uh, bad behavior, which is not unlike what you know, Facebook and Twitter. Right. Right. This is where there is an intersection and more conversation needs to happen between these two ecosystems, because a lot of the uh, safety and and trust conversation that is already occurring on the mainstream social media. How to how to find this behavior, how to mitigate it um, is also, I think, is going to be happening more and more um, for companies that want to be seen as responsible actors.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how much what you pointed out there about this blurring line between publishers and really ultimately creation. We already saw this this blurring line between publishing and content hosting in the context of, you know, talking about Twitter, Twitter is Twitter a publisher? You know, what what does the first amendment mean in the context of Twitter who can be banned, who can't? And now it's like yeah, content creation and publication are not clearly separable things either. And it, it really starts to raise questions about the free speech angle too, you know, is, is content creation via automated systems, um, can that, where does that fall in terms of protected speech, free speech? Like, it seems like there's a whole Gordian knot here that, that we're going to have to figure out. And I, I'm just, I'm glad I don't have to be one of the the policymakers who's going to have to kind of split that down the middle. But, uh,
1: yeah, this one in particular is the one that worries me the most because, Um, And I'm not a free speech lawyer, so I will caveat that. Mm. Um, But there is a question to be asked for us as, as a society, as a whole is, are we entitled to artificially amplified speech? And where is that line? Um, if you think, I mean, not to go down that particular road too far, but if you think about when radio came around, when broadcast television came around, we yeah. had to address that kind of amplification and broad broadcasting of, of messaging. Um, is this the same? Is AI just an amplifier, a different scale of amplifier, or is this something different? And you know, we focus a lot on foreign influence, for example, and we kind of know where that is with, you know, we can control it with FARA and other mechanisms of, you know, where foreign um, government sponsored speech lies in our political debates. But this this becomes a whole lot more complicated in the context of elections, in the context of political speech um, and whether our own candidates are you know, have the right to artificial amplification, um, and I think the, the the sort of the ecosystem is evolving really, really fast, and debate hasn't caught up to that yet.
0: Yeah, and actually, you know, you mentioned the uh, the political angle, which I'm surprised my mind didn't go there immediately. I was thinking of the the private sector angle. You know, imagine. Um, I'm just going to mention, I'm I'm not picking on Nike or Reebok or whatever for for any particular reason here, but suppose you're Nike and and Reebok is going to come out with a a new kind of shoe and they're going to have this big Twitter campaign, you know, like there there are huge risks to doing this. And in practice, I, I don't suspect this would actually happen, but it's at least technologically possible for Nike to go, okay, we're going to set up a giant bot farm, human, like very plausible bots with long, as we discussed before, long track records of posting about authentic seeming things. And then we're going to stick them on this uh, ad campaign posting about how they hated the shoe when they bought it. Nobody should buy this thing. And all of a sudden, like, you know, product reviews are already bad enough on Amazon. But when when the entire kind of ecosystem, you get this cacophony of fake stuff being thrown around back and forth, it kind of seems like reality comes apart at the seams, right?
1: Yes. Yes, it does seem that way. And uh, there are no readily available answers about how to tackle that. Speaking, uh, you, you mentioned <laughs> reviews on Amazon. Amazon is suing two companies for uh, essentially providing, allegedly providing uh, services to to uh, publish reviews. Mm. You know, this is the kind of campaign that can get automated pretty easily by a, a third-party company, you know, to provide reviews on products, to, you know, do brand messaging or counter messaging. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I think um, the, the, the more these, these systems are going to get automated, the more intense our information environment becomes, the more volume they introduce into the system, the more we need to have some degree of authenticity built into who is talking, yeah. who is doing this talking, and um, this is why, in papers, for example, and, and then chatbots introduce a whole other game, of, you know, uh, can open up a whole other can of worms for this uh, because chatbots are conversational AI in general are becoming a lot more human like and they can carry on dialogue. Um, that's why I think we are moving more and more towards uh, requiring uh, labeling for AI systems, um, both yeah. chatbots. And um, other other AI systems. Question is, how can this be foolproof? How can it be? Um, how easily can can bad actors really work around that?
0: It's fascinating. It's now bringing back a, a memory that I I since tucked away. But um, so so I my. One of my companies back in the day went through this startup accelerator in the Valley called Y Combinator. And we went to a dinner where one of the co-founders of a big social media company, I won't mention who, but he was canvassing for uh, for perspectives from the audience, like all these like 400 startups and 400 startup founders. And he was, like, he was asking, look, I see a future where, this is 2018, so long before GPT-3 or anything like that. And he said, I see a future where identity is going to have to be a part of all kind of social media. I don't see a way around that. What are some strategies that you guys can think of that we can start playing around with? And people are throwing around ideas, you know, the, the usual like, oh, blockchain, you know, single source of truth, this and that. Um, and it just, it, it seemed like we, we weren't anywhere near a solution when it comes to identity. People value the, the, uh, the ability to be authentically not yourself online, to have, you know, alt- alternative accounts and things like that. Do you see that persisting? Do you see that as being something that can be maintained? Or are we going to have to start enforcing, you know, one identity, one account type rules when it comes to social media?
1: Uh, it, I don't necessarily have a position on this yet because I debate with myself all the time on this. issue. Mm. I'll be honest. I think much like everybody else who is in this ecosystem. Um, one of the biggest arguments not to have uh, de-anonymization online is the plight of activists in authoritarian regimes and their ability to to hide behind uh, an anonymous identity. Um, Keep in mind that social media companies in particular, the large ones, operate in a global environment and they have to uh, pro- they have to operate on the basis of laws of a particular market. So they're in a difficult position if we require them in the United States to de-anonymize everyone, they're in a difficult position elsewhere. Um, and so we haven't figured out how to protect the identity of, um, and, of those who want their identity to be protected. Um, whose lives may be threatened as a result of it, and yet have rules for everybody else. Um, That's one issue. One of the more more interesting and promising uh, directions that I've been seeing lately is this idea of building uh, authenticity into content. So there's a conglomerate, uh, an industry, and and media um, organization, not really an organization, a consortium of sorts, um, that got together to see how they can build some concept of provenance into the content that gets generated by AI. You know, it was essentially essentially initially led by Adobe and Microsoft, and then they got together and uh, New York Times is now part of it. And so this um, C2PA uh, uh, consortium, this idea is pushing forward the idea that maybe it's possible to have uh, meta signatures for content that you create um, on a good faith basis. If you are, for example, a developer and you have a cool synthetic video demo that you want to put out there, then it's in your interest as an art form to sign right. it, to say who you are, and then have a way to track the how that particular content gets messed with or mutated or uh, or other in, in other ways. Um, so that is an idea that is being explored to build an internet sort of almost an internet standard for how that kind of content gets created, uh, build that standard into typical software packages that help create that. Um, So for example, Adobe Illustrator or or Microsoft Word (laughs) Um, and and see if there's a way for us to start um, building provenance and authenticity into content itself without necessarily building it into the digital identity. Um, Those are some things that are that are out there right now being explored, but we are very much still early in that stage and, and all ideas are need to be on the table and more of them
0: i'm really glad that uh, that you started us down the path of solutions because that definitely leaves a better taste in the mouth than where we were going so uh in that spirit i know there were a number of different recommendations that you you wrote up in the report one of the things you touched on here was norms in kind of academic publishing and company publishing of algorithms maybe that's a good place to start but i'd love to get a broader sense of what are some of the solutions you see as, as being on the table right now for, for this category of uh, issue
1: um yeah i think one of the uh, one of the issues uh, that I saw through this research is the excitement around technology tends to generate wanting to open, pu- openly publish both right. or to further research, which is necessary. This is in part what has driven this machine learning revolution um, of the recent years. Uh, open research, pub, uh, pub, openly published research, um, share it, provide demos, get people excited about it, get people comfortable with it, that this yeah. isn't a dystopian universe that we're heading into. <clears throat> and that's all great, but it also provides avenues, easy pickings for, um, <clears throat> for threat actors to use this and misuse this technology. So the tension here is that what do we do about that? Um, and the place to start for us is, is to start thinking about this do no harm principle when we publish research. Um, and this is first and foremost starts with AI developers themselves, because as Jack Clark of formerly of OpenAI had pointed out that we are in the pre-Hippocratic era in, in yep. sort of in machine learning research. Um, and, there are some efforts now starting up to try and coalesce around a set of principles, a set of norms, but we're not there yet. So I think what I would say is that I would encourage uh, the AI community to create more opportunities to come up with these sets of norms, more conversations to come up with these uh, sets of norms uh, because they are the closest to the technology they're the ones who are creating it they're closest to the solution space as well because they're creating it Um, so before we start talking about any sort of government involvement government regulation uh, there has to be a lot more effort on the part of those who are creating technology to try and understand how the impact can be mitigated for example uh, if you're going to publish uh, research do a threat model of that research first. Yeah. Understand how it's going to be misused by the threat actors. In fact, my one of our recommendations was that you have to start building threat modeling into the process of creating the technology, publishing the technology, talking about the technology, uh, period. And we, we've already learned this from the cybersecurity perspective. We need to start bringing those best practices from cybersecurity both into... Um, into AI research, but also into building new features on social media or launching new social media platforms and trying to understand what the threat model is and trying to understand the misuse scenarios and trying to mitigate them before you launch.
0: It's interesting because that that imposes a certain kind of tax on people who want to do this responsibly, that's always going to be the case, there's a safety tax in, in all things. But it's it seems especially challenging when it comes to things like foundation models, things like uh, GPT-3 and so on. Um, in this particular context, I'm reminded of the fact that first when OpenAI published the paper about GPT-3, they kind of just went, oh, here's an amazing autocomplete system. It can do these little cool things, maybe translate between languages, a couple of different things. Um, check this out and then they they published and it was relatively quiet at first and then when you started to see the uh, the demos being being played out on twitter the the private beta being put out all of a sudden, OpenAI themselves started to realize, "Oh my God, this thing can be used for like for coding. It can do web design. It can do, like all these different things that we never expected." So, being able to predict the use cases, even even the threat models that apply to a particular system, takes a lot of work. And even the very people who develop these systems sometimes don't know and can't know what the full range of capabilities of a system is until it's put in certain hands, exploratory hands, at the very least. Um, I guess, th- I mean, that's that's just more work for people to do, but it's, I guess, something that they have to be factoring in in their, in their threat modeling, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you have a great point. You know, sometimes de- developers of the systems themselves have blind spots around... How these systems can get misused, which is why the conversation about the interdisciplinary, like interdisciplinary conversation right. about this, needs to happen. And I think it's starting to happen. Uh, I think it's starting to happen um, among the AI developers and social media companies, and also the cybersecurity experts, starting to kind of understand uh, what's how these systems can 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 really change and shape our environment. Um, what I you know part of the reason for our recommendation to really build in threat modeling into the process is for them to start thinking like a threat actor right um, we we didn't come to this soon enough in 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 building software yeah um, but we did arrive to that and so software security application like Building secure software has changed tremendously. When we did get to that point, that it has to be part of the development process, um, we're still not completely out of out of you know out of the line the of fire. Right? Yeah. right, of course, systems are very complex, um, but uh, it's the right direction. So the earlier that process can start, um, and the more AI developers can learn from uh, application. Sec- security application developers and uh, and uh, others who have already like are coming from a little bit more mature field, um, the better.
0: Well, I, uh, I, I definitely agree with you on that. Not that I'm in a position to disagree based on all the work you've done and all the research. Thank you so much for, for sharing all these insights. I mean, it's, what, a, what a great overview of the space. I feel like we could have kept on going for another hour. It seems like there's so much to, to talk about. Maybe maybe we'll have you back actually to do just that. But I really appreciate it, Katja. Thanks so much for, uh, for sharing your thoughts.